The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by the 2019 World Changing Women's Summit. Join us January 28th through 30th in Santa Cruz, California to nourish yourself, connect with other women in leadership, and elevate business. For more information and to claim your tickets, visit worldchangingwomensummit.com. That's worldchangingwomensummit.com. Hey there, podcast listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at WCWpod. If you haven't yet, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. You're listening to the World Changing Women's Podcast, where each week we talk to badass female founders who've built game-changing brands that are making the world a better place. We resisted, we resisted, we resisted, then we surrendered. I mean, that's the real truth. Uh, we just couldn't not do it. And, um, you know, I don't know, resistance, you it takes so much energy to resist. And it's so much easier to surrender when you actually get that you can. Lynn Twist is an absolutely extraordinary human being. She's a renowned worldwide speaker, the author of Soul of Money, the founder of the Soul of Money Institute, and she's also the co-founder of the Pachamama Alliance, which is a nonprofit that works with an indigenous tribe in Ecuador, the Achuar people, to protect the headwaters of the Amazon rainforest. Her work has been featured in the likes of the Chicago Tribune and the San Francisco Chronicle, and she's even been featured as a guest on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. And on a personal note, after Lynn spoke at our first Conscious Company Leaders Forum in 2017, I got inspired to go on a Pachamama Alliance journey with her and her team and spent 10 days in the Amazon rainforest with Lynn and the Achuar tribe. It was a life-changing trip for me and also solidified for me just how incredible Lynn truly is. On this episode of World Changing Women, I sat down with Lynn to talk to her about her decades-long journey and impact, what keeps her going, and how she listens to her own inner wisdom. I'm your host, Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media. Welcome to World Changing Women. Lynn, I'm just going to dive right in and was curious if you could walk us through the origin story of the Pachamama Alliance. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, um, thank you, Megan. Um, I, I was very deeply, uh, passionately and, um, you know, kind of irrevocably committed to the hunger project, the work to end world hunger, uh, with the hunger project for, from 1977, um, for 20 years to 1997. Um, I really threw my heart, soul and everything I had into the hunger project. And we, built a, a beautiful movement worldwide, uh, which still exists and is flourishing. Um, in many, many countries, I was responsible for fundraising operations in more than 50 countries. And I just loved that work and spent a lot of time in India and Bangladesh and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, places like Ethiopia and Namibia and Senegal and Ghana. I just loved it. I thought I would do it for the rest of my life. Uh, and a, 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 one of my Hunger Project donors, uh, whose name is Bob, invited me to go to Guatemala, where we were not working. We weren't working in Central or South America at all because people there are poor, but they're not hungry. And so um, he invited me to go to Guatemala to help uh, with his project there. He was a Hunger Project donor, but he also had his own organization in um, Central America, that was really wonderful. And he wanted me to help his development director uh, 
learn a little bit about a little bit about how the Hunger Project was doing development. So I took a, a two week leave and um, and he made a very nice contribution to the Hunger Project, kind of acknowledging the Hunger Project, letting me do that. And I went to Guatemala. And when I was in Guatemala, I was with a group of people that included uh, some of the board members. And one of the board members was a guy named John Perkins. And John is a famous um, guy. He's an author. He he worked for many, many years in the Ecuadorian Amazon uh, in the Peace Corps. And then he became uh, involved in consulting the World Bank. And then he started an energy company. And then he went back into the Amazon and really saw that the Amazon rainforest was his passion. So John was part of this trip. So John had also studied shamanism and he was a, uh, really a, a shaman himself. And we discovered that there was a shaman um, kind of guiding the projects that we were looking at in Guatemala. So John organized a trip for a, a handful of us to go see this shaman. And the shaman's name was Roberto Pose. And I had never been to a shaman before in my life. This was 1994. And um, I didn't know what to expect, but it took place uh, late at night, somewhere around midnight, on a hill um, in Totonicapan, Guatemala. Um, and when we arrived, there were 12 of us. The shaman had built a huge bonfire. Uh, and, and he asked us to uh, lay around it with our feet towards the fire. And, um, and so we were like a wagon wheel around this fire. I mean, I said it was a huge bonfire. It was really a, 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 for, a for a campfire, it was huge, but it was, it was a, a, a fire. And the shaman um, then through John's translation and John's support, be, he, this is a shaman who didn't speak uh, English or Spanish, so he was speaking in Mayan. But he then began to drum, you know, drum and chant and told us to close our eyes and journey. And I didn't quite know what that meant, but eventually I closed my eyes uh, and I listened to the sound of this man's voice, which was very hypnotic, and the sound of the drum and the crackling fire and the starry night on this hill in Guatemala. And I started to go into some sort of a trance. And it's very hard for me to explain this without uh, some visuals, but I, uh, I felt my right arm start to quiver and turn into a gigantic wing. I mean, really turn into a wing. And then my left arm started to quiver and turn into another gigantic wing. And then I felt this sort of beak-like thing growing on my face. And then I just had to fly. I mean, I could not lie there any longer uh, with my feet towards that fire on my back. I had to extend these wings. I had to fly. It was, it was imperative. And when I began to lift my body up with these giant wings up over the campfire, I looked down and there I was laying there a normal human being with all these other people. And I could still hear the shaman's voice and the drum. And I started to fly into the night sky. And it was so beautiful and was so awesome uh, taking wing like this. And then it began to dawn and I looked down and I saw that I was flying in slow motion over a vast, 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 almost unending forest of green, brilliant green. 
and it was so moving. And I looked down and I could see, I had excellent vision. I could see all the way through the trees, all through, all the way through the canopy to the forest floor. And I could see the little critters, you know, running around on the forest floor. And then I would lift up my gaze and I would be able to see this vast forest ahead of me and beneath me. And then at a certain point, these disembodied faces of men with orange geometric face paint on their faces and yellow, red, and black feather crowns on their heads started floating up to the bird, me, and calling to me in this strange language that I didn't understand. And the call was, was somehow beautiful and somewhat poignant and captivating. And then they would disappear back into the forest, these faces. And then the faces would show up again a little bit later and call to the bird. And then they disappear again. And this went on and on and on. And I kept flying in slow motion. Um, and I, I was hypnotized by these faces. I was mesmerized by this experience. I was touched by it. And then at a certain point, I heard a very loud drum beat, you know, bang, 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 bang. And it kind of woke me up out of this trance. And I opened my eyes and sat up and realized, oh my God, I'm not a bird. I'm a human being. I don't have a beak. I don't have wings. That was weird. And I looked around the circle and the fire was down to embers and everybody was sort of discombobulated and they all looked like something weird had happened to them too. And then the shaman asked each person to share their story. And when he got to me, I shared what I've just shared with you. And he gave me kind of a strange look. Uh, and then we went on to the next person, the next person, the next person, all the people shared becoming some sort of an animal. And then it got to my friend, John, uh, who was also a shaman who was translating. And he had a vision very, very much like mine, almost exactly the same. So the shaman completed the ritual and then told John and I to stay and dismiss the other people. And they went back to the hotel. And he told us that this was not a normal vision. It was not a normal journey, that we were actually being contacted, being communicated to, uh, and we needed to respond to these people who were trying to communicate with us. And I thought, wow, well, that's kind of far-fetched. But John immediately not only bought it, but he knew who they were. He said to me, I know who these people are. I know where they are. They're, they're Achuar people in southeastern Ecuador. They live in the Oriente. They've been remote and isolated for thousands of years, and they're ready for contact. I know because I was just with their Shuar brothers, and I learned that the Achuar would begin seeking contact, and this is how they do it. And I thought, oh, my God, this is too far-fetched for me. I can't even get behind this. You go down there <laughs> wherever it is. I'm, I've got to go to Africa. So I went off to Africa and pretended like this had not happened to me. And I was in a meeting in the Novotel in Accra, Ghana, uh, with five men and three women in a Hunker Project board meeting in Ghana. And we're having this conversation. And these Ghanaian people, they have very, very beautiful um, they have very beautiful skin. It's, it's blue-black. It's so dark. It's just blue-black. And here they were uh, sitting around this table. And suddenly the men had orange geometric face paint showing up on their faces. And nobody else was saying anything about this. No one else apparently saw it. So I thought I was hallucinating. I went to the ladies' room, came back, and everybody was normal, still having the conversation. And then it happened again the men started having orange geometric face paint just appear on their blue-black faces. And I burst into tears. 
And then everybody rallied around me. What's the matter? And of course, no one saw this but me. So I said, well, I'm sick. I need to go back to the United States. I've been in too many countries, too many time zones. I'm so sorry. And I left and went up to my room, packed my bag and went to the airport, got on the first plane to Europe, which was to Frankfurt, which went then to New York and then back to San Francisco where I live. And all the way on the plane, I saw the faces. They were coming towards me with the orange geometric face paint, the yellow, red, and black feather crowns. They did not go away, eyes open or eyes shut. And so when I got back to San Francisco, I was completely rattled. I tried to reach my friend, John Perkins, the only person I could really talk to about this, but he was back in the Amazon himself. So it was 10 days before he returned. And once he did, he told me, I've been with the Achuar people. They want us to come. They want us to bring 12 people, including ourselves. We must go to them. They're ready for first contact. And so this was serious business. So I invited my husband, Bill, first. And we put together a group of nine other people, John and I and Bill, nine other people. We went down to Quito, drove down the Valley of the Volcanoes over the eastern side of the Andes, through the, through the cloud forest, down the Bastaza River Canyon, flew in a small plane into Shuar territory, and then another small plane into roadless, pristine Achuar territory. And when we were all there on a dirt landing strip near a river, they came out of the forest with their orange geometric face paint, their yellow and red feather crowns and uh, spears. Uh, and we began an encounter that changed my life. And that was the beginning of the Pachamama Alliance. <laughs> the story, I've heard it more than once at this point, and it still just captivates me. I, I, I just, I still can't believe that this is how this unfolded for you. Um, can't believe it either. <laughs> Um, one of the questions that I have is, you know, it might not be a, a shaman-like journey where, you know, you're actually having visions like this, but many of us have a calling that is coming from a soul level or that, you know, that thing that we just can't, that, that idea that we just can't shake. And so many of us kind of talk ourselves out of chasing something that we really want or, you know, following what our soul's purpose is. And I, I know that for you, the hunger project, like you, you've said it here, it, you thought you would be doing it for the rest of your life. And then you had this, this incredible experience that just took you in a different direction. And I'm curious for you, you know, that moment of transition, when you realize that you, your life's calling, you actually had to follow something else what did that feel like? And how did you actually kind of take that leap from leaving this organization that you loved so much to start something that was really your soul's calling? Well, I, um, I had a difficult time. It really, the experience I just described took, took place in 1994. And it wasn't really till we started Pachamama Alliance in, in you know, right at, shortly after that, 1995, 1996. Um, but I didn't really let go of the Hunger Project till 1997. And it took me two or three years. I resisted this change of direction. I resisted. I tried to do them both, which was completely insane. Um, but I tried. And then um, I was fortunate enough, and I know it sounds strange to say it this way, to get malaria in 1997 and be so sick that I could not work for anyone or do anything or make any kind of a difference except lay still and get well. And um, I was sick for nine months, and that's a long enough time that you uh, have 
space and time for contemplation. Most of the time I was so sick, I couldn't contemplate, I couldn't do anything. But when I started getting better, I realized that this was a marker for me and it was an intervention that my body um, really was teaching me that I needed to stop and reframe, rethink, re reboot, recreate, resource my life. And all this work in the Amazon that I knew nothing about, I didn't speak Spanish, I wasn't involved in environmental issues. I really, I, we were, Bill and I, my husband Bill, we were kind of clueless, which was, you know, we thought that was such a drawback, but it turned out to be an asset because the indigenous people, we had no agenda for them. We just came and we listened and that's what they wanted. And so um, I, I used, I'll say, the physical breakdown to make the transition. And I say that not, I'm not saying that people need to, you know, get sick in order to make a transition or that I recommend getting malaria, but more that you, you sometimes may want to listen to your body. Um, well, always listen to your body actually, but it may be, at least in my case, my body helped me make the change. And, um, I just, I, that's my own personal experience. Um, but there, I'm sure there's other ways. For me, it really was having to stop, stop altogether. Because when you're driving a result like ending world hunger and your focus is on producing results and making things happen, you don't have the psychic space to contemplate, to reflect, to really see what is your, what is your real dharma now. And getting sick and very, very sick um, although painful, allowed me to do that, just that. And I don't know how else I would have done it, but that's really um, because I'm, I'm such a passionate player. But if you can stop in other ways, contemplate, you know, take a retreat, listen to the forest, um, you know, be in silence, uh, go do a, a, a meditation workshop of some kind or, or a silent retreat uh, so you don't have to get sick, Maybe that would be helpful, but I know I just had to stop, and I think that's part of what allowed me to see uh, that I needed, that I was being called to do something uh, quite different than I ever expected. This episode is brought to you by SheEO. SheEO is a radically redesigned ecosystem that supports, finances, and celebrates female innovators. SheEO activators have contributed over $3 million in funding, which has been loaned to 32 separate ventures in three different countries. In the beginning of next year, SheEO will announce another 23 ventures funded, bringing the total to over $5 million and 55 separate companies. Learn more about this year's SheEO Venture Semifinalists and how being an activator is shifting the landscape for women entrepreneurs at SheEO.world. That's SheEO.world. This episode is also brought to you by Visit.org, a platform that makes managing your corporate social action programs efficient and seamless. With it, you'll gain access to social impact team experiences benefiting local ventures, build a fully customized giving back program, and use back office tools to increase productivity and match employee interests. Start giving back today with Visit.org. So I want to dig into to those years, 1994 to 1997. Um, 
you've made contact with the Achuar people. And then, you know, from this stems this incredible alliance that you built. Um, And you said that much of that was just from listening to what they were asking of you. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about how you guys set up the Pachamama Alliance and what were some of the very first things that you did to just get started as an organization? Well, the trip to Guatemala was 1994. And then we didn't get uh, our trip to Ecuador to meet the Achuar for the first time together until 1995. Mm -hmm. So um, once we had our first encounter, you know, this is not going to be that useful to everybody that's listening, but in that first encounter, um, Bill and I had no idea this was going to be our life's work. We were really just thinking we'd go to the Amazon. This would be pretty cool. You know, we could talk about this with people and they'd be impressed. You know, it was almost like, pretty fascinating. Let's do it. But then when we were there, um, the Achuar asked us, first of all, they said, if you're coming to help us, even though we invited you here, don't waste your time. If you're coming because you know your liberation is bound up with ours, then let's work together. That is the foundation of our work with Pachamama Alliance. That is the ethic on which everything is built that they, uh, the indigenous people really called for us and wanted our partnership, but we realized their partnership with us is just as key and they have so much to offer to us. They also said, um, we want you to work with us uh, to help us protect these forests and we know that we need modern world friends, but we also say that the source of the destruction of the forest is really not here. It's in the dream of the modern world. So our request of you, our mandate, is that you go back and change the dream of the modern world. So not only were we invited to help them preserve their land and culture and their forest, the forest that on which all life depends, it turns out, but also we were mandated to change the dream of the modern world. So this is a pretty big, tall order. And all of that came to us in that first encounter, which was only a few days. Also in that encounter was a shamanic overnight experience with their sacred plant called ayahuasca. And I don't always talk about this, but that ayahuasca experience, uh, which is a very powerful teaching plant for them. It's not a drug. It's a plant. It has energy. It has a, it's a being. It is a teaching plant. And when the shamans work with it and give it to you, the teacher comes. Um, and so, especially in the rainforest, I know people do it in other settings, but in the rainforest, where it comes from with the shamans who've been doing it for thousands of years, the experience is undeniably powerful. And so Bill and I had a very, very powerful experience with the plant that shook us, uh, to a place where we both realized, gosh, this is not our plan for ourselves, but it is our destiny. So then we began you know, to figure out what are we going to do? He was running two companies. I was managing the whole Hunger Project global uh, fundraising operation and, and other things for the Hunger Project. So we didn't have an extra second. We also had three kids. I don't want to put them out of the picture. They were very important to us at the time. Um, so we tried to do it on the side. Um, we set up a nonprofit uh, account through a a friend at the Institute of Nordic Sciences. And then it just started to take over our lives. And um, 
we realized it's a calling. It's not a project. It's it's what we're meant to do. It's it's who we're being called to be, and that was hard to swallow because Bill had a career, and I did too, and our kids. You know, life was a certain way, and this completely interrupted. It was a big disruption. Um, so we had to get off it. I'll say we had to let go. We had to. Uh, stop resisting. We had to, and Bill started going back and forth to Ecuador to, to you know, kind of educate the indigenous leaders in their federations about how to handle money. They'd never really dealt with money before, and we we started financially supporting them and putting together their political federation to deal with the government. And um, he started going back and forth, and and then I was you know raising some of the money, but it, it was sort of on the side, and eventually. I don't know. I don't know. I know you're, I, I wish I could give people some practical advice, but eventually we, we resisted, we resisted, we resisted, then we surrendered. <laughs> I mean, that's the real truth. Uh, we just couldn't not do it. And, um, you know, I don't know, resistance, you is such a, it takes so much energy to resist. And it's so much easier to surrender <laughs> when you actually get that you can. And it was impractical. It was, um, it was annoying. It was, you know, it was not, it, it made no sense to us. We didn't speak Spanish. We didn't know what we were doing. But the strength and the power of what was possible and what the indigenous people hold, I, I'll just say it was a spiritual calling that was so undeniable that we finally surrendered. And, um, and it became our life's work. So one piece that I want to tease out of that that I think is actually really transferable is kind of feeling this calling, um, and, and you were actually kind of handed this mandate of changing the dream of modern society. And many many of the people who listen to the World Changing Women have ideas that are grand ideas, you know, paradigm-shifting ideas. And yet, as one person, it feels very daunting to want to try to, you know, change an entire paradigm or, in your case, change the dream of modern society. So I'm curious, you know, when they told you that that's what, one of the things that they wanted your help with, how do you even start approaching such a, a grand idea without feeling like you're, you know, powerless against it? Um, well, it was helpful to be a couple rather than one person, I must say, because mm. Bill is very um, courageous and strong and he's really, really smart. So we we lived with that mandate, change the dream of the modern world, a dream rooted in consumption and acquisition without any regard for the consequences. We knew like all of us know, listening to this, that we live in a trance, some sort of a weird trance that has us doing things that we're not consciously destroying the planet, but we are destroying not the planet, but the, but the capability uh, to, you know, to have future generations have a life worth living. No one wakes up in the morning and says, how can I do things today that will screw up the environment or pollute or make it impossible for future generations to enjoy a healthy planet. No one's doing that on purpose. It's part of a trance. And we realized when they said change the dream of the modern world, what they meant was wake people up from this trance they're in, you know, kind of sleepwalking towards an outcome that no one wants. 
And I, I must say that the indigenous people never make us wrong for it. They, they have compassion for how caught we are. And so the first thing we needed to do was wake ourselves up. And that's, that was the hardest part. We resisted this too <laughs> for years. I mean, we didn't really start working on the change the dream part of it until, I don't know, 2003, I think, uh, because we were really working to understand the indigenous people and to be in the Amazon and do things like land titling and, um, and mapping with indigenous people to help them protect their territories. That was you know, that was hard, but that was easier than changing the dream of the modern world. But eventually we realized we got to do something. So the first thing we did was see how caught we were really, because you can't wake other people up if you're not awake yourself. And um, that really gave us the, the strength, the compassion, the depth to create a program, which is called the Awakening the Dream or Changing the Dream program. That what did not make people wrong, but actually um, lifted people out of the trance so they could see that they were in it and begin to keep themselves awake and wake up other people. But it took a lot of work on ourselves, is, is the way I, I have to say it. And so we create, created kind of a little bit of a think tank with some of our you know, smartest and most conscious friends and, and allies. And we did hundreds of hours of meetings on how to awaken ourselves and awaken other people from the trance of um, environmental degradation, um, social injustice, and a spiritual stalemate, and you know, people being numb spiritually. Um, and that really came out of working on ourselves, if I can put it that way, uh, in, in, in a kind of a deep and profound series of conversations that took place over years. And I'm not kidding. And then we did tons of research. And then once we put together the first, first test program, we had, um, we brought together all the, what we call the gatekeepers, people who really know environmental sustainability, people who really know about social justice, people who really know about spiritual practice. And we, we delivered it to them and then got their feedback. You know, people like Amory Lovins and Paul Hawk and environmental and, 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 and just people working on justice like Dan Jones and, um, and other people, lawyers and uh, spiritual teachers like, um, you know, Joanna Macy and other wonderful people that, that came and, and really looked at what we had created and then gave us unbelievably powerful feedback. We went to the great masters and then we incorporated their feedback. And then we went to the, them again and uh, got more feedback and incorporated their feedback. So we really, 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 and all the while we were waking ourselves up more and more. So um, I guess my, my, my process that I'm describing, I don't know if it's relevant to everybody, but the big thing, if you want to make a giant change in the world, you need to start with yourself. I mean, that's my recommendation. And where, who, in what way are you responsible for the thing you want to change? In what way are you personally in your own consciousness um, still in some way responsible for what it is that you want, want to transform? Uh, and include yourself in the early stages of it and include yourself all the way through. Uh, because it's not out there. It's, it's, 
it's in all of us. It's everywhere. Include, you have to include yourself is what I'm trying to say. So that, that's, I guess, the best answer I can give you. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, oh my gosh, as, as usual, um, I feel like I could talk to you about this stuff for hours and hours. Um, and I also do want to get your thoughts on some other things. Um, one of them being, so in addition to the Pachamama Alliance, you've also written just an unbelievable book, The Soul of Money. And I wanted to understand a little bit about the inspiration behind that book and how it ties in with the work that you do at the Pachamama Alliance. Well, the Soul of Money book came out of a, a many years of fundraising and and managing fundraising operations and then working with people and asking them for money, philanthropists, people who have lots of money, uh, people who have very little, and working with people in, in Ethiopia after the famine who have absolutely nothing and learning from uh, people who live in resource-poor circumstances about their relationship with money. So I... I'm not a financial planner and I didn't go to business school and I didn't study economics, but I have a intimate relationship with many, many thousands of people and their relationship with money. And I, I realized in giving a couple of speeches that I had some uh, kind of a way of seeing it that was unique enough that um, many people said you should write a book. And so I eventually did with the help of a collaborative writer and the soul of money and the soul of money Institute really exists to transform our relationship with money because it's one of the most dysfunctional places of most people's lives. They feel hurt and angry and anxious and upset and screwed up in their relationship with money, even very, very wealthy people. And so um, this work to transform our relationship with money and life uh, came into existence really right around 2003, 2002, 2003, with the existence of the Soul of Money book. So Pachamama Lines was already underway. Um, and the distinctions in the Soul of Money message are about um, scarcity being the kind of prevailing winds in which we live in a consumer society that makes us think we need more of everything. Uh, and how to let that go long enough to see the exquisite distinction of enough that we're actually completely and totally taken care of by the universe and we have exactly what we need and sometimes it's a bankruptcy and sometimes it's a divorce but we get what we need and if we can see it that way we use it to nourish our life um, even if it's hard uh, we learn we learn to develop ourselves out of what comes our way and um and so that those distinctions of sufficiency and working um in, with money in a kind of new light in a new way um, is also very consistent with the way indigenous people think. I mean, I didn't know that, but indigenous people, they, they, um, they share everything. They don't individually own anything. Everything belongs to the community. The good of the community, the good of the forest, the good of the world is a way higher commitment to them than, than individuation. And so there's so much to learn from them. Plus, this idea of sufficiency rather than scarcity uh, has you work on um, environmental issues, ecological issues, uh, in a different way, with reverence and respect for what the um, environment provides for us, rather than fear that it's going to go away. Um, and so the soul of money principles, are, and particularly the sufficiency principles, are very relevant to the work with Pachamama Alliance, very relevant to waking up from the nightmare of scarcity and consumerism to 
to recognize that we have what we need on this planet. And when we take care of what we have, when we nourish ourselves, when we nourish the environment, when we nourish each other, we're, we have plenty. It's when we're scrambling to get more all the time and make sure we have more than the other, other guy uh, that we create scarce resources. So there's, you know, I could go on and on about it, but they're, they're completely aligned, completely resonant. Um, this, it's really, in many ways, the same work with a different face. One question that I really wanted to dig into with you was we have a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business leaders, a lot of executives who listen to the show. And I was wondering if from all of this work, I mean, this well of work that you can really pull from with the Hunger Project, with Pachamama Alliance, with Soul of Money Institute, and everything in between, if there were two to three pieces of advice that you were able to give to business leaders in our current world right now, what would those be? I do feel that business um, is the largest institution on the planet now. You know, when you look back at history, there was the temples in Greece and uh, there was the, the church was the largest institution and then industry became the largest institution and then government. But, but now it's business. Really, business is bigger than anything. And the responsibility that comes with that is, I think, awesome. And the opportunity that comes with that is awesome, um, especially entrepreneurs. I mean, especially entrepreneurs. I, I have a wonderful relationship with Barbara Marks Hubbard, who's, who's 85, I think, or maybe 86. I don't know. She's, she's older than I am. I think she might be. Well, anyway, she's older than I am. And she's written a book called The Future of Entrepreneurship. And she said something really beautiful in this book. She said that evolution, I think we're in an evolutionary leap as a species. And I think that's why all this stuff is showing up that we need to transform. Um, and an evolutionary leap is now, we're, we're now, it's not evolution is happening to us. We are also engaged in creating evolution. So evolution is now co-creation, according to Barbara. And I agree with that. We've become so powerful as a species that we're not uh, we're we're co-creating evolution. And she says evolution concentrates power to where the solution to the crisis of each era can be found. Let me say that again. Evolution concentrates its power to where the solution to the crisis of each era can be found. She says. We are currently witnessing a radical concentration of power into the hands of entrepreneurs. And she, she says humanity has experienced a birth of a new era as emerging as, and as exponential technologies redefine what it means to be human. That it's the entrepreneurs who are at the apex of evolution. And um, I wanted to say that on on this podcast, because I think that's, it's a huge responsibility, not a burden, but it ennobles entrepreneurs. It ennobles us. It ennobles business um, to be way more than it's ever needed to be or being called to be. And to have business be, as they say, the B Corp's not the best in the world, each company, but the best for the world. To have that kind of competition, who can be the best for the world? is where business is going, I think. 
uh, because of you and people like you, Megan, but also because it's what wants to happen. Um, and I feel very grateful to business for the productivity and the metrics and the benefits and the, you know, the incredible gifts that we've all received for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years from business, thousands of years. Now can those gifts be for the whole, for the whole well-being of future generations, for the whole well-being of our ecological services of this planet, for every human being, not just some. And um, I think it's a huge challenge for business to rethink itself, reroute itself, redesign itself. But I actually think that that is key uh, to everything. Yeah, take that in. Um, oh. did, you ask, did you ask me for tips? <laughs> I'll, I'll just say that for business people to, to join, um, you know, cop, conscious capitalism, to join social venture network, to join businesses or social responsibility, to join B Corp to do whatever you need to do to find people, like-minded people who can keep you honest and keep you developing uh, your business to be more conscious, more able. Uh, read Truly Human Leadership by Bob Chapman, who's who owns 110 companies and 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 as he acquires bankrupt companies, he, he he fires no one. He's all about the people. You know, read these books by Raj Sisodia and uh, Shakti Leadership. Um, engage like you're engaging in podcasts like this. Keep yourself inspired to be an ever more powerful business leader and use these networks, these books, these podcasts to keep yourself on that point and find new metrics so that you're measuring way more than the bottom line. Um, you're measuring the health and well-being of your employees, the health and well-being of your customers. You know, really find new ways to measure that include profitability, but don't center only on profitability uh, that make you a great company and make sure you're creating great people uh, and great results for the world. One thing you just mentioned in there was kind of this element of staying inspired. And this is a question that I've asked you before and in interviews, but I, I really wanted to capture here as well. Um, you are a force of nature. You're, you know, one one week you're in Ecuador leading a trip in the Amazon rainforest, and then the next you're at the United Nations at Climate Week, and um, you just seem like you have this well of energy and positivity that comes out. And you and I have talked about kind of this narrative of balance. Um, and I was curious for you, how do you keep the light in you lit, and how do you stay inspired, and how do you um, find this, you know, infinite well of positivity within you to just keep you going to do all the work that you do? Well, uh, I manage my energy. I try to manage my energy more than my time. And managing my energy, what I mean by that is I, I gravitate towards that which gives me energy and I withdraw from from projects and people and things that drain my energy. Um, there's a wonderful phrase from a little book I read uh, where the guy says, I can't remember his name, but he says, cultivate lilies and avoid leeches. And that's another way of saying when you look at your calendar or when you look at your week or when you look at the stuff on your desk, what gives you energy and what, and what drains it. Now there's some things that you just have to do, you know, you got to pay your bills and maybe that drains you, but 
But for the most part, if you can keep yourself um, oriented towards that, which gives you energy, gives your company energy, gives your employees energy, gives you energy, you'll make choices that keep you keep your light shining brighter and brighter and brighter, and you'll love your work. I had a wonderful meeting with Governor Brown, who just finished this huge climate summit here in San Francisco. And after it was over, I had a chance to have a private meeting with him, my husband and I. And, um, you know, you think about this guy, he's the governor of California. He's 80 years old. He's got three months more of his term. He just ran this gigantic global climate event. Plus, you know, he's got to take care of education and poverty and, you know, just imagine being the governor of California. And he turned to, I, I said to Jerry, how do you, I know him, I know him for years. I said, oh, Governor Brown, how do you, how do you keep yourself sane? How do you know what to work on next? My God, there's people demonstrating outside the door and there's the labor crisis here and the teachers are want more pay and the prisons, they're trying to close. And he says, this is so much fun. This is so much fun. <laughs> and I, I, I was just stunned. You know, I was thinking, my God, he's having so much fun. He's, he, you know, he's 80 years old. He's retiring in three months and he's having fun. And, you know, I, I tell you that story because when I look at that man, um, and I'm a, I'm a fan of his, and even if you're not, if you think about the responsibility he carries, um, that he that he creates to be fun is so key to his success. His accomplishments are staggering. And I would say a lot of it comes because he thinks it's fun and he creates it to be fun. And that's another thing that I, I feel that I'm, I do. Like, I love talking to you and I'm not kidding. And I, and I like saying that. I love talking to Megan French Dunbar and I love being on a podcast about this stuff. And I think you should, you not should, but I think people, if you can start using the phrase, I love, I love waking up in the morning. I love this cereal I just ate. I love the fact that, you know, that there are women in my company. I love, if you can start actually acknowledging that people be, a, be people want to be around people who love what they're doing and you want to be around people who love what they're doing. So love what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so those are a couple things that I um, that I recommend. I, I remember um, I, I had the just humbled honor of being able to join you on one of your trips in in Ecuador um, to visit the Atchwar tribe last summer. And there was one moment where there was like some stuff going on that, um, you know, some of us were finding to be challenging. And you showed up on the deck and you said, isn't this exciting? <laughs> yeah, and I, I, you really just brought that spirit of it. Um, like, just like, let's figure out how to have fun with this, um, which I love. Um, so it's my final question for you. And, you know, we're actually recording this on the day after the the Dr. Ford hearing has just happened. And um, our team this morning was feeling a little bit of a just sense of frustration and, and hopelessness. And I was curious for you, you know, not necessarily pertaining to those hearings, but just general in the world right now, what is giving you hope for the future? Well, your generation is definitely giving me hope for the future and the transformation of business and entrepreneurship being so powerful and so inspiring is giving me hope for the future. I also feel that the, you know, the ugliness, the vitriol, the, the finger pointing, the, the backbiting that's going on 
that we're witnessing in our, uh, unfortunately, witnessing so glaringly in, in these hearings and also in the way Congress is working and the way the administration is handling things. If we can see it as almost like um, a flushing up of the what needs to be cleared away and what needs to be transformed, the stuff that was under the radar and hidden and, you know, kind of behind the curtain is now up to be to be dealt with. And I say that's an acknowledgement of where we are as a citizenry in the United States and particularly women, because we are not, um, we're not, you know, behind the scenes anymore. We're out in front and women will transform business. Will Women will transform governance. We, women will transform the environmental sustainability uh, issues and global warming. You know, Paul Hawkins done this study at uh, uh, the 100 top solutions for reversing global warming. And if you add number six and seven, which are both about women, that becomes number one. You know, women, is, women are the key to ending world hunger. Empowering women and girls and bringing forth that power uh, is, it, there's nothing close to as powerful as that going on on this planet. And I consider this the Sophia century, the century when women will take our rightful role in co-equal partnership with men and the world will come to balance. And the hearings that we're watching are revealing that. I mean, that's, a, that's how I'm looking at them. Revealing the weaknesses, the darkness, the underbelly that we need to address in ourselves, not just in the people who are kind of revealing it. Um, it's easy to stick it with this personality or say it's this guy's fault or that woman's, you know, she's off course. Or if you stick it to the people you're watching on television or to our administration and not recognize this is showing up in all of us, that we all need to own the dark, the shadow, the uh, bigotry, the, the, you know, the, the underbelly, the ugliness. Um, we need to own it so that we can transform it. And we need to admit that all of us go there. I mean, we do. And when you watch those hearings, you start getting mad. You start getting angry. You start saying nasty things. You start becoming what you're watching. So it's in all of us. And um, it's up, I say, because we're ready to transform it. And you can't transform it when you can't see it. Um, and er and it's, it's, it's now up to civil society. It's really up to us. And I'd say primarily up to women and men who understand um, the feminine and the heart center of who they are. That's really what's going to transform all of this. And I'm grateful that it's showing itself so that we can deal with it. A huge thanks this week goes out to Lynn Twist and her team at the Soul of Money Institute and the Pachamama Alliance. A huge thanks also goes out to our wonderful production team at Story Pop Media and the entire Conscious Company Media team. This is the last episode in season one of World Changing Women, but fear not, we'll be back in early 2019 with season two. So be sure to subscribe to the World Changing Women podcast to make sure you get your updates. And thank you to you, our incredible listener, for being with us for this first season. The World Changing Women's podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you could help us out by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review of this podcast. As a reminder, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WCWPod. Join us next week for an interview with another world-changing woman. And thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you.
Story Pop Media Production.